Right now, the entire world is talking about this one social media protocol called Noster, N-O-S-T-R. And in this video, we're gonna go over exactly what Noster is and how it's gonna change social media for the better. Also, isn't it crazy that some countries around the world don't even have access to global payments? For example, Stripe, which is one of the world's leading payment providers, is only available to the people in 47 countries. For the people living in the rest of the world, is there maybe some ways for you to receive donations or crowdfunding for your next project? In this podcast with Mick, we're going to talk about exactly that. Mick is the CEO and founder of this very interesting platform called Geyser Fund. He is also a Bitcoin expert and fun fact, not the biggest fan of NFTs. And trust me when I say this, you're not going to want to miss this episode. So let's start with some fun questions, shall we? Hey, what's up, man? I'm doing good, man. Thank you. Sorry, I was uh, finishing up a call. I appreciate your um, unending flexibility on helping make this happen. It's going to be a good conversation. So yeah, I mean, we can just get into it. I've got some fun questions to start. Uh, The first question being, if you had to change one feature in the iPhone, what feature do you think you would change? Uh, that's such a good question. I, it's one thing I, I actually don't use too much. I have mainly an Android. Um, is it is it for Android uh, as well, or is it iPhone specific? You can answer for Android. It'll be mm. the first Android answer we've received. I don't. know. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm deviating from the main question. Um, yeah, if I were to change one thing about about the the iPhone, um, oh man, this is hard. It it works. I mean. It does what it's supposed to do, right? It doesn't do. There's nothing that I would want it to know, or that I'm aware I would want it to to do that it doesn't do already. Um, I think it tries to be a little bit. Sometimes it tries to be a little bit too smart. So um, when it comes to changing uh, Bluetooth, changing um, the the. Sorry, this is such a bad answer already. I'm already, but. Uh, Toggling between Bluetooth, airplane mode, it, sometimes it, it just tries to be too smart and doesn't just do what it want what I want it to do. So I think some of the basics sometimes are a little bit um, well, a little bit over automated. Um, but yeah, sorry, I must have, that's a pretty really bad answer. But <laughs> it's a really tough question to be honest. That's yeah. one of the reasons why maybe I shouldn't start with it because it stumps <laughs> a lot of people. Because the iPhone is just such an incredible piece of technology and it's ingrained in everyone's lives. And a lot of the smartest people in the entire world are working on this product. Yeah. So just right out the bat, asking that question is probably a pretty difficult one. Also because it's like, also because it's like, yeah, ask me anything Bitcoin. And then it's like iPhone. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think about that as much as I think about other things anyway. Yeah. Well, some of the other answers that I've received there, it's hard to differentiate between a new feature and for example, what could be made on an app. So I think every single yeah. person who I've asked that question to, some type of app has come along and right. solved the the problem. But it's always interesting. The, when I first came up with the question, the idea behind it was, what is something that people wished was in the iPhone? And is there something that was annoying about the technology that they could fix? The next one, is, the next question is actually Bitcoin related. Uh, so everyone who's listening, I probably knows Warren Buffett, maybe knows Peter Schiff, but these are two notoriously anti-Bitcoin people out there. So my question to you is, who do you think changes their mind on Bitcoin first, Peter Schiff or Warren Buffett? It's a tough one, right? Because Peter Schiff is is much more aligned aligned philosophically, right? To to you know the hard money 
So in that sense, most probably Peter Schiff. At the same time, because gold is some way competing with Bitcoin, um, there's a chance that he'd be the last one to to let go of of it. Um, and Fat will still keep fighting for the gold, you know, because he has he has uh, you know he's pretty much deep, deeply invested in uh, uh, deeply invested in gold. Um, Warren Buffett is too old to repent and reevaluate his entire uh, life versus Bitcoin. So I don't think he'll ever understand Bitcoin. Uh, Peter Schiff is most likely to, you know, show, uh, at least appreciate Bitcoin as a uh, as an alternative to the current system. Yeah, Peter has so many things right. He just doesn't believe in Bitcoin, which is so <laughs> unfortunate because I feel like he's got so much of the puzzle complete, but he's just got such a I big vested interest in gold. Yeah, he just doesn't. He, he gets it. He he will be a Bitcoiner pretty easy, but he's got his gold stuck in, really deep in his pockets. He's got the interests aren't aligned for him to understand and jump in the Bitcoin ship. Well, the next question I want to ask you is a thought experiment. So let's imagine that you and I are transported back in time and we go back to the days of high school and we're best friends in high school. At that time, what are you interested in? What do you like? How do you like to spend your time? Good question. So back in high school, uh, I was, you know, trying you know, quite, quite sort of the athletic sporty guy, um, did a lot of sports, a lot of swimming, a lot of water polo, kind of um, quite busy, quite busy doing all those different activities, studying, um, and also spending some good quality time with friends. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, pretty, 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 pretty sort of comfortable, decent, uh, uh, non-pretentious life, just uh, working hard, uh, studying, um, and also exploring my passion. So, you know, big into uh, just reading about philosophy back in the day, um, philosophy, sort of culture, and uh, these types of things. So, yeah, I was probably just kind of curious about, you know, reading yeah, these things like yeah, Nietzsche and, uh, you know, postmodern theory and stuff like that. Wow. So you, when did you first pick up Nietzsche? <laughs> yeah, That's I think, not very common for someone in high school, I feel like. No, it was, it was a little bit early. Uh, it was a little bit early in Nietzsche, um, but got a little bit more deep into it in, 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 in uh, university. But definitely the start around the yeah, 17, 18 year old, you know, towards the, the senior year of school. Uh, I don't know how that happened. I think some people that I have met, some friends as well, probably the same circles, were curious about um kind of postmodern theory which was you know quite alluring you know if you think about all those big movies you know if you think about uh you know uh, fight club right or uh, zeitgeist all these movies that's, you know the matrix like all these movies that sort of really break down and, and actually critique modern society as a sort of you know, state of anomie state of lack of meaning and the fact and, and the postmoderns alert because learning because it sort of tried to take that to the full extent of saying, okay, there is absolutely no meaning in life, right? And uh, um, um, but then, you know, I snapped out of that a little bit after um, and just but but it was still an interesting exploration of how society you know, today, how do we make a, a sense of society today? And also, if you think about like the problems that Bitcoin solves, I think. Um, it's also this this problem of, of this, this, this whole system being so unfair um, the, from the ground up, meaning like the money itself is broken. And I think as a result of that, it has all these kind of 
emergent properties of society. And if you have lack of meaning on the basic layer of, of the monetary system, you then have lack of meaning in all these other areas and things just start not making any sense. So yeah, I think uh, I think that was interesting because of that, but also that I, I think Bitcoin helped me get out of postmodernism per se, which is a bit like a, a bit nihilistic and uh, yeah, a bit pessimistic. For everyone listening, could you define postmodernism? And actually, after you define it, I'd be interested to hear what journey you've been on that has has impacted your views, if that makes sense. So, for example, in high school, it seems like you started really diving down, learning more about philosophy. And I'm sure that as you've gone down that rabbit hole and started learning more about Bitcoin as well, that your views over that period of time have changed. So... Let's yeah. start with postmodernism and take it from there. Right. I mean, like many people, I've gone through a lot of different journeys and different explored many different philosophies. And usually when I do that, I, what I do is usually like I, I, you know, kind of obsess about something and go really, really deep and almost become that thing. Right. Um, and, and then after a bit, I get sick of it and I try something else and I go deep down on that thing. And that's how I, I learn. I think a lot of people learn this way. And we don't have to be afraid of, of going down these, these rabbit holes and, because that's the only way we know what it's like to like behave that, that kind of, uh, like uh, taking a particular perspective is really to inhabit it. So, um, and so that, you know, I think that's what allowed me also to be okay with exploring Bitcoin as a, as a whole philosophy. Um, and, um, you know, going down the rabbit hole and discovering that shit, actually a lot of things make sense. So yeah, I started off with postmodern, you know, I, I, I mean, I was sort of interested also in a lot of like religion, actually, I think earlier, I think even before that, and uh, I guess, yeah, mid, mid to, to late of my high school period, you know, interested in like, what is, you know, what is spirituality, what is, what is God, what are, what are all these things, is it possible? And it's curious about how different cultures came to that similar conclusion. And, uh, and yeah, I think things like uh, uh, trying out different uh, you know, different psychedelics help to understand, okay, well, what does it mean to, to, to be one with the universe and all these different things as well. Um, and so also, I was really curious about that. And then in some other, you know, some other time also, you know, taking a very different view. So actually thinking about, you know, maybe the opposite is true, actually. Maybe there is no, maybe there is no, there is no, uh, there is no, like, if there is no God, right? If God is dead. As, as Nietzsche said, and end up sometime with this postmodern modernist thing, way of thinking about it. The postmodernist ideology is sort of a, a response to the modernist one, which is more uh, kind of grounded on okay, everything is can be understood, everything can be rationalized, everything uh, makes sense. Um, uh, and then postmodernism says that things don't don't make sense; they don't have any significance. Things don't have meaning. Uh, all meaning is sort of subjectively created. Um, and every life itself is a bit is actually a, an illusion, and um, it's a bit hard, honestly, because it's, it's these are very complex philosophical concepts, um, and there's many different nuances and different people thinking different things as well, um, right? So, so, right, and so and so basically, um, postmodernism then takes us all the way to thinking to a lot of the, actually, it takes a, a lot of the the woke kind of agenda actually makes it all possible because 
uh, all of a sudden you don't have any more objective reality, right? Everything is questioned, even objectivism is, is questioned. So if objectivism is questioned, then everyone believes what they want to believe. And then all of a sudden you identify as a cat or as, a, as another gender, <laughs> which makes things just really silly. Um, and so, um, yeah, and so I don't know, I think I ended up studying university anthropology and, uh, and economics. Um, and that was interesting for, for many reasons, but one of them was that anthropology, well, basically anthropology said one thing and, and economics said another thing. Uh, anthropology was, you know, really relativistic, uh, interested in kind of postmodernism, right? And economics instead was very more modernizing, like, you know, like rationalistic and stuff like that. And um, I had to navigate these different ways of seeing the world at university. And to be honest, Neither of them made that much sense, um, but particularly economics didn't make much sense. Uh, economics just saw the world through these just big numeric aggregates, uh, GDP, and, um, and just forgot like the experience of reality. And that's what I learned about anthropology is that it, you know, that they, it talks to people, it, it finds mean, significance, it finds meaning, it decodes meaning based on real experience social interactions that we have right so we make sense of the world by talking to, to people and uh, understanding their subjective experience of reality well economics is completely detached right you it's completely un anecdotal it's like you just look at the numbers and you have to use that alone to make sense of the world and uh, and so i was as a result of that just a little bit more interested in anthropology so i pursued that a little bit more but i was also particularly you know, really unhappy with how anthropology was tackling certain issues. It was, you know, again, there's no objectivity whatsoever. Um, and yet Tempa describing human civilization in a positive light often seen and seen badly. So civilization is like, it's a, it's a very romantic view of indigenous people, which is, you know, cool. Indigenous people are, are you know, really interesting uh, uh, and, and you know, fascinating cultures, but Oftentimes, they're sort of really romanticized quite a bit and, uh, um, you know, uh, protected at all costs against bad society. And so there's so much, you know, I would think harmful, like left-leaning ideologies uh, that um, co-op and entire disciplines. And so any attempt at, um, at trying to see the world a little bit more objectively and see how similar human civilization is a net positive is that every time we, we, we take civilization forward, it's... Um, it's good for everyone and that energy is what takes humanity forward, like reducing the cost of energy. So there's some fascinating anthropologists back in the 1800s that talked about you know, energy and, uh, and how energy, uh, how basically civilization can be measured as sort of uh, the lowering the cost of energy through time and the creation of more energy. And, and instead of modern anthropologists like, oh no, it's very fiat, it's very fiat mentalities like, you know, uh, don't try to make an objective sense of the world because everything is subjective. It's just boring, honestly, just boring. Um, so yeah, I think because of all this sort of, um, all these particular reasons, I was, you know, I think, uh, tried to make sense of Bitcoin. Uh, I was introduced, introduced into Bitcoin in like 2011, 10, and was sort of rejected it right away. And then when I actually took the time to look into it in 2016, I was, okay, started understanding there was something more here. And, 
understood with these Bitcoiners, I approached it from the perspective of anthropology, which is, you know, let's talk to these Bitcoiners, let's do some research. I spoke to different Bit Bitcoiners and traders, but kind of crypto traders, and um, started looking into them. And um, and yeah, I sort of uh, I said like either these people are completely nuts, or or they've got something that is is really like just gonna change the world. And increasingly, I began to understand that these guys were mostly right. Um, um, and um, and then I sort of started peeling away the different layers of the onion. Um, yeah, and yeah, <laughs> happy to. Yeah. yeah, so let's unpack that uh, first. It seems like a good place to start would be to learn a little bit more about your framework of how you see the world and how you try to solve problems. And it seems like your experience in studying anthropology has played a big part in shaping that mentality. So for everyone listening, could you outline some of the key tenets or core takeaways that you got from your education in anthropology and then how when you looked at Bitcoin, how you really began to make sense of it. Right. So the key tenet of anthropology is, well, anthropology is the study of culture, is is trying to understand humanity, humans, people, from the lens of culture and, and, and really behavior and history, right? So anthropology is divided between archaeology, uh, biological anthropology, so looking at like the biological change of humans since the very beginning of time. Uh, and then also looking at archaeology, so like the historical remains of humans. And, um, and then cultural anthropology, which is like studying of culture. Um, and cultural anthropology is sort of taking over almost all the others. It's sort of the most recognized uh, type of anthropology. And uh, so, as I said, as you can, you can see here, there's quite a different, different breadth, right? Um, but if you just look at cultural anthropology per se, the the main method of understanding human human society and culture is by looking at, um, at how human how humans behave. And so, um, anthropology and sociology are kind of similar in that they are go out in the world and they do field work. Field work uh, is the main method methodology of doing research, right? So you if you want to learn about how industrial how developing countries become uh, you know more more modern or developed you might go in a particular country and do field work for in academia to do two you know one or two years of research in you know these particular places and you come out of with, with insights and uh, it's again by being in place by being in the field and gathering these insights um, that you, that you gather knowledge, you gather the epistemology. So that's the key tenet. Is, um, there's another word for it, it's ethnography, which is uh, uh, graphy is a, kind of the study and ethno is the eth ethnicity, the people. Um, so yeah, so ethnography is a key tenet. So really like direct observation and uh, uh, deduction, right? So not, not inducing anything, but like, sorry, not deducing anything, but inducing it from evidence on the ground is, is a key is a key thing the, the second principle which I, I, I like a lot less and I think it's kind of destructive is the theoretical framework so with all these you go to the field you take in all this knowledge all this information uh, you see how people behave on the ground and then you you use theory to kind of create 
uh, sort of fits the evidence side of framework. And I find that very often um, that ends up being very um, too framing of particular, like it's it's almost pigeonholing uh, the world in these set frameworks that oftentimes just lead you to the same subjectivist uh, ideologies. It's not that the framework is wrong, but it's more that the theories are limited. Like there's only certain, and often those, the, the left leaving the Marxist frameworks end up winning over the others, and that will give you the good grades, you know? So it's very biased in that direction. So um, would it be fair to say that the reason why you don't like that second tenant, for example, is because it's much more theoretical and it just doesn't really always apply to the real world. And so you yeah. have these blanket approaches that are just making things worse than actually making them better. Yeah. Yeah. I think the theories that are used are, you know, uh, yeah, have these particular like, uh, uh frames of reference. Um, for example, like, you know, think about the theories proposed by like Jeff Booth or, um, you know, the Austrian school, like those are very, very interesting theories that you don't actually read that much in economics as well. But basically they propose the idea that actually value is subjective and, uh, and that um, any attempt of quanti quantifying economic activity is, is, is futile because people have different interpretations of value and therefore uh, you can't really uh, do that. But that the, the main theory there is that also like uh, any attempt at meddling into the economy via a centralized uh, centralized entity of sorts will actually end up making things worse because of the fact that the market is decentralized and so it acts as in this very in this very complex way it acts in this very um, um, efficient way um, not non efficient um, central centralized players are efficient but less effective efficient in the sense that there's only one particular approach that's, that's done but it's less effective because it acts in this monolithic way but decentralized approaches are are like the market is just more effective it works better um and so for example this you know method of thinking about the world is you know not really thought about and not really valued that much in anthropology so it's like that's why oftentimes anthropology and i would say honestly a lot of academia like i'm i'm very very bearish on academia like very very bearish and because it's been so kind of tied in with the policy machine um that almost it has to prove itself provide value to the policy machine in order it has to fit inside the policy machine to be relevant to the state apparatus and as a result, the entire sense-making epistemology that it used, that every academic, um, I don't say every academic unit, but like anthropology and economics has to, at the end of the day, be useful to getting employed in some type of public sector or relegated to the uselessness of academia, <laughs> which remains its own bubble. Like anthropology is, a lot of it is it's really that. It sounds very harsh, and like if friends of mine hear this, it's probably because and probably probably think, you know, oh, this is too harsh, and oh, it's unfair. But it's true. It's really, it's really true. I will echo that sentiment that I am also very bearish on the current state of the education system. A side story of where I went to school. I went to Bucknell, and 
it is pretty unbelievable to see how polarized the climate is uh, in terms of the woke agenda and not necessarily trying to think of the best way to put this, but the way that I see it is that you have these echo chambers. And if you go and you present the opposing side of what everyone in the echo chamber is saying, then you almost get ostracized, not just from an actual group setting, but in terms of your performance at the school. I had some friends who were very more conservative minded, conservative leaning. And at that school, all the professors are extremely, extremely liberal or on the woke side of the spectrum. And if they just get a sense that you are not in the same type of, I, I don't want to keep saying echo chamber, but if mm -hmm. you're not in agreement with their way of thinking, if you go and present opposing views to what's being taught mm -hmm. or challenge them in any way, it reflects really poorly in your grade. And yeah. I got to see that firsthand. And at the end of the day, I think one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that you have this, this mechanism that is in pursuit of the truth. And I think that at the end of the day, you're going to have a much more successful society if you have it based in truth, if you have that truth seeking function rather than just shutting down opposing viewpoints. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I love so much about 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 it, that this exact thing that it's 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 not about you know, your perspective. It's about trying to get to okay, what is what is not as what is true, but what is truth, right? Like. Well, how do we get closer to something that is real? And, um, and to me, I think study, all that anthropology sort of things and things not really making sense. Uh, even just the fact that in economics they don't they don't teach you like what is money, right? And understanding money, what is what is money for the first time, is it just fascinating. And yeah, I like to read, often say this that uh, Saifedina Amusa's Bitcoin Standard. It's probably the best anthropology book I've read ever, right? Because it points, it's, it's about economics, but it's also about humanity. It's a human flourishing. And uh, the fact that it tells you pretty, pretty blatantly that history of human evolution is the unendless, ceaseless, uh, ceaseless as the endless pursuit of a better money and a harder money. And that a lot of this is not even conscious. It's just unconscious understanding of, of better money not because people always studied it, but just because it worked, because societies founded on harder money did better than those that were founded on shit money. So it's just it's just incredibly powerful, and it's a stuff I think that, like you say, it's it's this it's this truth. Like harder money wins. Period. Doesn't matter what you believe; it just does because your your energy is being devalued if you store your energy in a in a money that can be debased as simple as that and so any kind of attempt at making sense of the world to just like culture or or like um subjectivist destroyed like michael stairs are destroyed <laughs> like that's the fundamental thing that that matters um uh not, not the only thing but it, it's very it's foundational principle of, of, of human uh, life uh, that we store our energy and we uh, uh, through through you know through, through space and time right and and, Bit and Bitcoin harmony money is is what does both very well and um, turning fiat is great at uh, transferring value through through space but not time gold through, through time but not space and Bitcoin does both. Um, 
so yeah you know i think a lot of that and reading a lot of bitcoiners that that, that look at the technical stuff helps a lot but also look at the, the non-technical stuff is also interesting you know like uh tomer storlight loved, loved his writings um and yeah these attempts are bringing bitcoin into more of a like a philosophical uh, perspective often it's really interesting and oftentimes i would read this and share this with, with fellow anthropologists and they would think that these people were crazy i don't know maybe i'm i think i'm just weird like i don't know uh <laughs> of all my anthropologist friends i'm very few seem to have shared opinions and some of them actually there's some, some anthropologists i know that are bitcoiners but are socialists like they're they're super left-leaning socialists uh that actually are also cbdc friendly so they actually are more in favor of cbdc's than bitcoin i'm not sure how but i'm not sure how somehow they managed to <laughs> to, to hold the two together them. yeah I, i'm not sure about that but yeah very very few people that i know on top of this are interested in bitcoin i'm just a weirdo man. i think that's just what it is what's really interesting about bitcoin is that you can be plugged into it and interested in it no matter what your background is and so yeah. I think that in the future, you're going to see, whereas with a lot of issues, it's just politicized. You have once you have people on one side and then some people on the other with the right versus left. I think with Bitcoin, eventually it becomes more apoliticized and people start to realize that it's not necessarily the same thing as crypto, because at the yeah. end of the day, I think it is pointing the compass towards human flourishing. It is pointing the compass towards maximizing human well-being, maximizing truth signals, and minimizing suffering in a big way, minimizing a lot of the failures of the current system, uh, particularly the traditional financial system, which we're seeing a lot of today with just the banking institutions. Mm -hmm. This prediction of the $1 million Bitcoin in the next 90 days, have you been seeing this on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I didn't hear about it from Twitter first, I heard about it from our, our chief operations officer and president. And he told me about this and I thought he was messing with me when he first told me about this bet. He said, you have to check it out. Balaji made, I believe it's two $1 million predictions that Bitcoin was going to reach a million dollars in the next 90 days. I think, I'm hoping that he's incorrect, but even if it's just a big marketing stunt, it did get me to go and listen to the Twitter space that he was in with Breedlove and Gladstein. And his reasoning sounds sound. It seems like it logically makes sense, but the time frame is what really is alarming. Because even the most big Bitcoiners, when you ask them, they tell you, look, I believe that that's the world that we're going to. I think we're going to a world where Bitcoin is that unit of account globally. It is the reserve asset of the world. But having a prediction where Bitcoin reaches a million dollars per coin due to hyperinflation happening within the next 90 days, that is a prediction out of left field. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's it's going to happen. And I, I do think if, if you look at history, I mean, at the Weimar Republic, at the chart of, of the value of the Weimar, the mark versus the gold, like it is a hyperinflationary uh, graph. Like, and we are inside it somewhere, um, but it's really hard really hard to determine um where we are uh, because maybe it's not 90 days and on 90 days we're exactly where we are now and then in 180 days we are in a hyperinflationary uh curve so it's it's impossible to determine with certainty um and um the question is is the time but i i, I think 
I think it's quite possible um, that we'll, we'll end there, that um, the current state um, sort of forces us to, to, to take that, that leap. If not, the alternative is insane suffering, right? And, and this is where I, I would never want to be in the position of the Federal Reserve um, to actually create a type of um, you know, massive recession. Um, but it's possible. I also wouldn't discount that completely either. Um, I mean, people are saying spigots are open. It's 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 true. Like a lot of money is being created uh, in there right now. So yeah, I I, th I mean I do think this is the most likely scenario. But we're also not sure where the money is being, how where how the money is flowing, right? So I think it's hard to determine exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 impossible. Yeah, when you look at what happened with the Federal Reserve and just the crazy monetary policy that's been put forward since COVID started, really in 2020, and how all of these banks have had to try and react to this, right? Because you're mm -hmm. in pretty unfamiliar territory when you look at how quickly rates are changing both up and down. I mean, banks had this huge influx of cash. They tried to, the, as let's say that you're a banker, if you're getting this huge influx of cash and you're trying to find ways to make money on it, it does seem like a rational thing to go and purchase these bonds. But then mm -hmm. in a high interest rate environment, all of a sudden these bonds are underwater and all, and Crazy. all of a sudden, if you have a bank run simultaneously, you're in big trouble. And if you're a depositor out there and you're looking at the situation, do you feel comfortable having your money, having your checking account or deposits in a small regional bank? Do you feel comfortable having your money anywhere if it's not in an SIB, a systemically important bank? And the answer is no. And what I thought was really interesting with the Twitter space with Balaji, the guy who made the million the $2 million bets that the currency is going to hyperinflate in the next 90 days, they brought up an interesting point of while all this is going on with these bank failures, all this turmoil, you're seeing the beginning of the rollout of the CBDC. And I have this theory in my head. I'm not sure. I could seem like absolutely crazy after saying this out loud. But the big question is, let's say that you're trying to roll out a CBDC, right? How do you do that? For the people listening, the CBDC, that's a central bank digital currency, as the US government, in a way with the central bank digital currency, you're taking the role of money out of the private sector, out of these private institutions, these banks, and taking that responsibility so people could have their money, their bank accounts directly with the Fed. Now, this is a very controversial issue. You touched on it earlier, actually, in this conversation where some of your friends, they could be pro CBDC, which to be completely transparent, I'm on the opposite end. I think that CBDC, it can become a very slippery slope. Let's say that you become yeah. an enemy an enemy of the government or they don't like what you're doing or you have a social scoring system. It makes it a lot easier for them to target individuals, shut off your access to financial freedom, financial rails, incentivize you to spend money in certain ways. It can get very dangerous very, very quickly. But if you're the United States government or any government trying to roll out a CBDC, you have this natural conflict where if you want everyone to have accounts with the Fed versus having them in these small regional banks, how do, how do you make that transition over? And looking at what's going on now, in a weird way, it almost seems like things are set up to make that yeah. transition. 
because yeah. if all of a sudden you have all these smaller regional banks that all get consolidated under the systemically important banks, the SIBs, then it makes it much easier to make that transition over from the private sector to everyone eventually having accounts with the Fed under a CBDC. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the theory. It's that, the, that's that's uh, that's yeah. I, I think I had this you know same thought as well. Like it's it it's this perfect pairing, right? It's like centralizing, consolidating power so that you can then roll out these these, these central bank digital currencies much more easily than you had. Yeah, and it's it, that's been a trend. Like that guy from Oklahoma uh, said that. I think if you look at the last fifty years, the number of bank banks. In the United States, that it, that exists, something like has dropped by three times, or three or four times, and now we're at like twenty between twenty thirty thousand individual like uh, banks. Um, but if you look at the the the, the, the single like the, the main ones, we're, we're talking about less than a hundred, right? Uh, I think I'm, I'm not actually sure about this one, but but yeah, it's a lot more manageable if you have to roll out something like a CBDC, a lot more manageable. Yeah, so yeah. I totally agree, and it's it's, it's worrisome. It's um, it's possible that we will see, you know, a lot of these bigger players. But I, I I still do think that what will what was likely to happen. I don't think it's going to happen right away. I think all these are basically um, pushing some towards Bitcoin, but the majority is still like just being pushed around from place to place. Right. So I think some of these big say institutions, uh, uh, you know, or, or private entities that have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in their they're in a small account, they're not going to be buying Bitcoin. They're just going to be putting the remaining amount of money in their in the big banks, right? So they're just going to tag along in the system uh, and be nudged inside the system. Um, so I, th I think this is just pushing people more towards CBDCs uh, or the CBDC, pre-CBDC system um, rather than like Bitcoin and Bitcoin pumping to 1 million. I think people will start understanding, you know, what the CBDC stuff is, uh, and then realizing that that's not money, you know, and they start realizing that their money is expiring, that their money can be blocked. Um, that's when I think people will start waking up to to Bitcoin. So, on the topic of these bank failures, when you look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, there was this crazy, crazy way that everyone started getting involved in the conversation and almost started taking sides where there was one side that was blaming the people who had their money there. And then there was another side that, um, that was, well, well here, here was the crazy thing about it was the expectations of what people thought these founders and everyone should have been doing to underwrite the system. Right. And to, to make that more, say it more clearly, let's put you in the shoes of one of these founders or CEOs, right? You have a business that has $20 million, $50 million. There were some that had much more than that. How are you going to diversify your risk? Are you going to have a hundred different bank accounts and have $250,000 in each bank? There is the other side where, you know, you, you're taking on that level of risk. If you, as a founder decide, Hey, I want to work with this bank. I want to access loans. Silicon Valley Bank, this is a very well-trusted institution in the in the world of, of technology. And you had this as almost like a gold standard amongst these venture-backed companies. And if you were a founder there, 
your entire livelihood was there. It wasn't just your company, but you were most likely having your personal wealth management there. You were most likely having your mortgage out of there. Your entire financial stake was tied to this. And so you're put in a very difficult situation where all of a sudden you hear these rumors that the bank might go under, might be insolvent. And then all of a sudden you have to find a way to get your money out of there. Are you going to break your contracts, pull your money out, or are you going to leave it in there and hope that the bank stays solvent? Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure if but- I li- outlined the exact situation in the best way. This is just kind of off the top of my head, but I'm curious as to what your overall thoughts are on this isolated event, because it seems like there's a lot of contagion that we agree is going to end up happening because of this. And there's a lot of faith that's being lost in the traditional banking system. But in terms of your analysis of what happened here at Silicon Valley Bank, what are you taking away from that? I think it's it's a gradual, slow loss of trust, right? And a lot of people, just, most people tag, like if you're listening, if you're looking at what's going on, you should your alarm bells should be going like, burr, 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 like this is insanity. But but because the government, the state, the Fed just can print money out of nowhere, they then made all the depositors whole. So it's like, on one hand, this should make you be super skeptical of everything. On the other hand, the Fed just keep keeps bribing people. Like they're bribing people's sense of trust because the point is complacency. At the end of the day, people are, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, for one one weekend, people didn't have access to the money, but then the Fed stepped in, right, to support and ha- help the depositors. And so, at the end of the day, to my mind, the Fed and, and the system still stands in a good way because at the end of the day, it still helped out people right i uh, still make them whole uh, you know the, the 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 underlying message to most people will be ah oh, but see like the government stepped in and fixed it it was probably a market failure of sorts right like that's the problem is that like we we are living a bit of a in a bit of a bubble and you know we we think we're seeing the world objectively now i i do think we are but most people still see it as oh but then at the end of the day the government you know will bail out whoever has an issue and um and that's that's how i think the majority of people will see it honestly uh every like i don't know how many millions of customers silicon valley bank has but the majority of people will say okay well the government stepped in and helped us out in the end right um and that's the problem is that people don't look deep at the surface of the problem the problem that well on one hand silicon valley bank fucked up right by buying all those by by not taking the as they call the uh, interest rate risk seriously, right? They did fuck up. Um, on the other hand, to not fuck up, you need to have a team of like linguists, psychologists to analyze what central bankers are saying and what they're gonna do, which is fucked up. So this is such a waste of energy and life. Um, you should be looking at the market instead. We're just looking at these these centralized entities, these 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 bureaucrats, and, and look analyzing what they're going to do next and say next right so that's what's boring about it um so yeah i think uh you know some people like you know if it's five to ten percent of people who suffer through these things wake up to bitcoin that's a win and then just every crisis there will be a good five to ten percent of people that will be like this shit is fucked up and more and more of these crises happen the more and more people will realize that but that's also not enough. Like we need to create content. We need to create education. We need to create movies. We need to create books. We need to create art. We need to create graffitis. We need to create 
the message and bring it out so that all, when this shit happens, people have the touch points that will help them snap out of their little box will help them understand that something is off with the entire system. Um, so, yeah, we need to do work as Bitcoiners uh, out there in the streets, pre- creating content, creating films, movies, doing stuff to, to, to get people to snap out of it um, and to understand that there is a, a way out. So, you know, this is also where I'm especially bullish, where like there is so much of it. And at, at Geyser, which is what I'm, I'm building, um, there is, you know, I can see from the inside that there's a plethora of creative activity, a plethora of energy that is being put into um, into producing insane orange pills, right, all over the world. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I'm like, just really, really bullish about. I'm glad you brought that up as well in terms of the uh, the other side. I realized I forgot to mention it, which is at the end of the day, decisions were made and we shouldn't change the rules. We shouldn't bail out these people who made the mistake. Silicon Valley Bank made the mistake. Depositors technically should be playing within the same rules in terms of the $250,000 FDIC insurance. And I think Guy Swan was the person who had a tweet about this that was that rang more true for me than I think anyone else who I was following, which he laid out both sides so well. And he believes that what they ended up doing, which was bailing out the people who were above the bailing out the depositors is what they were going to do. He predicted that, Mm -hmm. but he said that this is the whole problem with the system is that it's once again, removing the objective truth of the dollars in circulation and putting that onto all other dollar holders. Because if you start manipulating the supply to help out particular groups, to help out particular holders of dollars, then you're devaluing the dollar for every single other person. And when you look at Balaji's prediction with the million dollar Bitcoin, that can only happen in a world where confidence in the dollar is lost and there's been a bunch in circulation and and you have these bank runs and you have a tremendous amount of printing. Yeah. They did print 13 million Bitcoin in a week, right? They what? The Fed printed 13 million Bitcoin <laughs> worth of dollars in a week. It's madness. So, yeah. Absolute yeah. madness. Yeah, I do I do want to ask you in regard to Geyser Funds, the company that you're building, actually, let, let's do this. The best place to start would probably be for you to outline what Geyser Funds is, how you guys operate, how you started the company, and then we can start diving into some of these other conversations around Geyser Funds and the implications of this technology. Right. Yeah. So I started build Geyser a year and a half ago, uh, and the, the whole problem I, I saw is that there were there was just this plethora of activity in in bitcoin and Lightning. there are so many creative people so many people with ideas um ed- educators etc cetera, etc cetera, that wanted to that are starting to build their life on bitcoin and, and uh, by that i mean just produce value for the bitcoin ecosystem be it making arts or uh have like educational giveaways type of programs. Um, and and I, I kind of saw that what was just happening was just like Twitter activity 
um, that was really just relegated to Twitter and people were sort of sending, using screenshots on Twitter to, um, to get funded for particular things. And uh, I, I sort of felt like what that was, was the sign that Bitcoin is working, lightning is working. And especially lightning being the, the interesting innovation for me as well, more recently, um, just because it makes micro microtransactions feasible, it makes um, uh, makes instant settlement feasible, it makes uh, uh, su transactions super quick and super cheap. My understanding was that there's all this infrastructural, in, all the infrastructural players, like the protocol is sound. All these infrastructural companies are coming out. Voltage, you know, BTC Pay Server, uh, uh, Blue Wallet, I'm sorry, uh, Breeze, and and now what really was needed is the application layer of Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin companies that use Bitcoin to enable these different types of experiences, and so we see that, for example, with Fountain, building podcasting where you can podcasters uh, while you're listening and earn as well uh, using using Lightning. You see that with gaming, you have Thunder Games that you can earn small amounts of lightning, uh, Bitcoin and lightning for playing games. Um, but where we didn't see this is in the world of like, uh, uh, say, you know, people with ideas that want to transform the ideas into, into projects, into reality. And this is where I thought, okay, I think really what we need here is a crowdfunding platform, a uh, simple crowdfunding platform where people can donate or donate for a perk or a reward, a bit like Kickstarter. And so there we went. We created a very, very simple prototype with one project on it, which was a conference in Nigeria, a Bitcoin conference in Nigeria. And we launched it and it received over, uh, over $2,000 in less than a week. And we're like, holy shit, Bitcoiners are actually giving away their Bitcoin towards the initiative all around the world to spread Bitcoin education. I was like, fuck, <laughs> this is completely like different from what I had expected, you know, the whole like, huddling idea. And yeah, and that was a key, a key insight, you know, yes, Bitcoiners do want to spend some of their Bitcoin, especially if it's a lightning, because it's just so much more easy to use. It's so much more joyful to use. I often said, Sending, spending Bitcoin is painful. Spending sats is joyful because it's just such an incredible user experience to just send instantly. You don't have to wait through that. Like, is it, has it arrived? Has it not arrived? It's incredible. And so we began looking at, okay, why don't people use existing crowdfunding platform, right? Well, it turns out that if you're in Nigeria, if you're in Africa, in Asia, in South, in South, South America, you cannot use traditional crowdfunding. You cannot use uh, uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, because they all use these main uh, financial, financial like plumbing, uh, like Strike, sorry, Stripe, or um, PayPal that only work in like thirty countries. So if you're if you're in Nigeria, you can send money to a project based in Italy, but if you're in Italy, you cannot. Well, if you're in Nigeria, you cannot create a project. You can send money, but you cannot create a project and receive money. And that's crazy. That's crazy. So forward to where we are now at Geyser, we've been live now for a year, but only open 
as an open platform for like four months, five months. And we have, we have had over 350 projects from all over the world, 50% of which were created in Africa, Asia, and South America, right? So these are projects that would not have been possible with traditional crowdfunding because Bitcoin is borderless, Lightning is, is borderless. Um, we too take those properties and people can create projects from anywhere in the world. So yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's you know, we are, you know, a simple crowdfunding platform um, that is non-custodial. So we, we don't take any custody of the funds. You, you set up a project directly by a lightning address. You just plug in your lightning address and we stream the sets that you receive straight, straight to your lightning address. If people fund you via on chain, we submarine swap it, so you receive it on lightning. So it's lightning native, it's um, non-custodial, and um, yeah, so it's, it's beautiful. And it's amazing to see all the activity that is happening. Uh, every week there is something new, unexpected. This week we had a project from um, from Munich who created a bunch of guys creating a Bitcoin experience, uh, basically a Bitcoin center in the middle of this uh, mall in uh, Munich. And what they're doing is just an education center and they're receiving donations from their friends, from their community in Munich, but also from around the world. So it's a beautiful thing. And really, yeah, really excited to be, you know, part of it and, and seeing all the activity that is taking place. I've got a lot of thoughts on this and I'm really excited to dive into this with you because I had not had experience with crowdfunding up until recently. And mm-hmm. you probably know the company Start Engine. They're like a crowdfunding campaign, crowdfunding right. platform. They're only available to US investors. That's equity though, right? Equity, yeah. Are you guys focused on things outside of equity? Yeah, yeah, so we don't do equity. Um, we, we, we've been thinking about it, you know, as, a, as a, something to do. But our feeling is equity has a lot more, basically, the sim- in simple terms, I, we think the innovation with Bitcoin is about payments. And so, and the beautiful thing about it is connecting the world through unstoppable payments, right? So, so we want to be, be where the fun is. Like we think Bitcoin and Lightning innovates basic payments. And so we don't want to have to do without, we don't have to deal with all this bureaucratic like and, and like legal um, stuff that is that is you know has insane upward potential, right? With the equity crowdfunding, but a guy in Nigeria still still can't be doing that. Like can't still be reaping the benefits of investing in a company in in, in, uh, in the United States or or vice versa. It's still it's still very complex. And I think the answer to that is not recreating the existing model. I think we actually need to recreate equity in a different way on Bitcoin, in Bitcoin native rails. Um, and there are some attempts to that. So if we were to go in that direction, we'd probably just try to build our own models. Um, so yeah, sorry, just to, to steal your, your, your point. Oh, no, your point I'm there. glad you jumped but, in there. I'm curious what type of models you guys are currently executing and what type of models you see potentially moving forward within this platform that you've built? Yeah, so right now the model is donation-based. You're just giving away funds that you're, you're not going to ever get back. You're just giving money towards people that are doing valuable things in Bitcoin, right? So we have Bitcoin movies, right? People that are doing films are on Bitcoin. And you can donate some sats towards them. Uh, 
you can um, donate towards you know your favorite artists. You can also buy things. It's like they have their their own store on Geyser, and you can just purchase things with Bitcoin, right? Um, so we have the Kickstarter model in the sense, um, but we are going to be executing in the next quarter uh, the all or nothing model. So that's where you know you give money, but if the goal is not reached, the money goes back to you. So you only that the creator only gets the money if they reach their established goal for them to to do the pursue the project really. Um, so that's something that we're we're gonna be pursuing. Um, but when it comes to like equity. Um, I, I honestly, I honestly don't know for sure. Like, I think, I think it has to be. There are some small experiments out there. Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Noster. What's happening with Noster right now? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I want to talk with you about at right, some point right. during this podcast. Yeah, look. Uh, so the question: What kind of model could work with equity? Is that sort of question? Yeah, the question is. Are you guys looking at moving away from just a straight donation model? Are there other models that you think might be unique that maybe are in equity? It sounds like you've got the storefront, you've got the more Kickstarter-like model that isn't purely equity, but actually interacting maybe with getting a conference ticket or getting some type of product. Yeah. But it's the more, way that I see it, it's, it's almost like a have, pre-sale. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've got a really interesting technology at your fingertips. And it's one of the no brainers, I believe, within what needs to be built on Bitcoin is just leveraging these, these channels, leveraging the lightning network. I don't see Bitcoin being Bitcoin base layer being the medium of exchange for transactions in the future. And I, I don't think very many people truly believe that. But having lightning and having all these applications that leverage light the lightning network like what you guys are doing at Geyser makes these new models possible, makes it possible for people to donate to a project out in Ethiopia, Nigeria, some other country where they never would have been able to get money to. And those dollars can go really far in those areas compared to somewhere in the United States, for example. Yeah, look, for me, it goes back to what problem are we trying to solve here, right? What's the issue that we're trying to, to solve? And right now, I think where Geyser is moving towards is, is I think Geyser is, is part of the experiments of what is happening in Bitcoin right now, which is exploring the future of, of the online work, of, all, of online work. I think we're all build, trying to build this new system where people can work online and have a life online. And um, a bit like in the past, people, say, from Italy would travel to the United States or Canada to work, right? And then when they were old, maybe they would try to maybe come back, go back to Italy uh, if they wanted, if not, they stayed. But this idea of, 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 of remittances that so far has happened in the physical world, I think is now happening in the cyberspace, right? So people are moving into, into the world of Bitcoin and they're finding things to do to be useful and they're bringing money back bitcoin back into the physical world into meat space um <clears throat> without moving in place they're still where they are like they're still in italy or wherever they don't have to emigrate they can do their work there they can emigrate into cyberspace and provide value in cyberspace in this context i think we're going to start seeing more and more of just because bitcoin is better money we're going to see, see start seeing more and more of these people that want to provide value to the network. Uh, right now it's because of passion. 
But down the road, it could be because of them being just, you know, actually wanting work. And as Bitcoiners grow in value, become more rich, they'll be able to pay people off to do, to do certain tasks. Um, and so what does that look like, right? Um, guys, right now, it's a very, very simple uh, idea of people uh, basically allowing anyone that has an idea to tell their story, right? And, um, and for people to support them along the way and provide per perks back. But I do, I do wanna, I do think this is the, the grand vision is to create this online economy, this online system um, where people can, can can work and do things online. Perhaps that looks like not just based on I wanna, I have an idea, I wanna do it, but also oh, there's all these different things to be done, people coming in and doing them. Um, so a bit more like a um, like a bounty type model. And uh, right now we have. Grants, Geyser Grants. Geyser Grants is basically enabled by um, Bitcoin companies that are sponsoring the grants and Bitcoin anonymous anonymous Bitcoiners that are giving away some, some of their Bitcoin for us to support people that are, are doing work in Bitcoin. And so, or people that have been doing work in Bitcoin. So we've given out a, a one Bitcoin to 30 different Bitcoin companies, creatives, uh, communities for the previous work in spreading Bitcoin signal. Um, we're doing now one right now for Bitcoin film. So we're giving one, uh, 0.1 Bitcoin to eight different films. And actually the community decides where the money goes by voting with sats. So you can vote for your favorite movie <clears throat> um, by giving sats over the tour of that movie. Um, and so, yeah, so that's sort of, uh, and so that's the grants model. And then there is I think the bounties model, which is more like, oh, there's, you know, so much value that, you know, I'll pay, you know, hundred dollars for someone to do this particular task, right? And people can actually go there and, and do it really, really like straightforward and simple. Um, but yes, I don't know if that, I think your question was a really, really good question. Uh, and the, the honest answer is, um, I think we'll see so many different models uh, and we're, you know, just the beginning of a new revolution of, of entrepreneurship, of work. Um, the one thing I will say that I think I've learned along the way is that Bitcoin behaves and changes us in, in unexpected ways. So while with fiat, we become ever poorer, and so we want ever more of it uh, because of how inflationary it is. With Bitcoin, because it makes us richer and um, it makes us rich every, at least every four years, right? We feel very poor in the bear markets, but we feel very, very wealthy during, during, during the uh, bull markets because it makes us uh, richer. It makes us much more likely to, um, to, to give away and, and spend some sats or things that we, we think are important for the network. Um, and so, and especially because we end up thinking more long-term and we think, okay, if Bitcoin is going to be worth a million in 10 years, I can afford to give away a small little bit, you know, towards these particular projects and things. So, yeah, that's sort of how I think um, the people, the, the economy of donations is much larger in Bitcoin than it is in, in fiat. <clears throat> um, that's why I'm bullish on, on, on donation-based systems. <clears throat> I'm also bullish because Bitcoiners really want to support Bitcoin-related activities. And... Um, this stuff is important. It's, 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 as I said before, 
without people doing art, without people doing films, writing books, like there's 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 no <laughs> there there's no Bitcoin. Like we're not gonna communicate this to the world. It's gonna remain a niche thing. It's not gonna work. Um, and then there's the and, and I think the donation fits with the value for value. So I'm not sure how 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 familiar you are with the value for value, but the idea is like you're getting value for a particular thing, particular content. Well, you give you know the content is provided open source for free, well, you give money back to the system, the, to, to whoever contributed so that they can do more of it. So I, I, I'm very, 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 I guys are very bullish with the, the value for value. We think we sit inside that very well. We then have the, the marketplace shop. And I think that's where I think dig, integrating, integrating digital more, like digital assets. And I mean, more like right now we're going to start off with Noster badges. Um, and, you know, we're curious to see how this whole, uh, world of of um uh, goodness what's it called um these sort of digital assets on bitcoin uh are gonna are gonna lo look like down the road but you know curious to you know curious to see how, how you know what it works out to i think I'm, yeah um and then and then finally i think there's this, this is the bounties model that is exciting and then the equity bit uh there's some attempts out there like the, like with nostra rocket which are interesting and the way that basically they work is Still very, very complex in early days, but it's trying to assign stock value uh, based on SATs and having these basically these centralized uh, agencies that will basically be uh, able to assign, uh, basically issue, uh, basically uh, invoices that the creators of these projects can use to get money from investors. Uh, and it's still basically a... Uh, equity tech model focused for small little projects that try to solve very specific problems um is not equity in the way that we think about it today with like you know raising millions of round dollars of rounds it's focused on small projects small initiatives and and being based on cost like the cost to produce a particular thing so yeah i i think that's really exciting i think what's really exciting is transforming the online economy and look let me take a step back here so if you look at the internet economy of today, I don't know for exactly how much of it, but probably around 80% of all the value of all the GDP of the internet is based on advertising. That's just, that's, so if you think about Apple, like, well, maybe not Apple, but like Google, right? Uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, maybe not so much Amazon. Amazon is the only like physical retail, physical kind of, uh, all the others are making their money from advertising, pretty much, and and that's a sign. Okay, and that's a it's a massive pie, but that's nothing. Like if you think about the physical world, you what's the value? What's the GDP of advertising of the entire meat space? I don't know. Is it more than twenty percent, fifteen percent, ten percent? I'm not sure. Online, eighty percent is 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 digital. Sorry, is 80% of the online economy is advertising. And then like 10 to 20% of the meat space economy is advertising. There is that entire 60 to 80% of the economy that we still have to build. And it wasn't possible to build because we didn't have a natively, a, a, a native, a money native to the internet. We didn't have native internet money, internet native money. And as a result, we were just full, like stuck in the sort of advertising system. Now that we have, native internet native money 
we can create all these new economies, like true economies, not just like making money from advertisements like YouTube, like you just make money based on the advertisement people watch us. That's still going to exist. But what about people having money online and people who pay for the value that they get, experience of different types, paywalls? I mean, Substack has paywalls and that works pretty well. But like, imagine that in a truly native inter- internet native way. So that's sort of what I, what I think the opportunity, massive opportunity is. And um, that's where I think you know, we're going to start creating true economies on the internet and uh, providing insane amount of value, new experiences, and new user experiences, new use cases. Yeah, it's incredible. Hearing you talk through that, it's almost like when you look at Uber, right? Before everyone had a smartphone in their pocket, you couldn't have a company like Uber. And all of a sudden you have a much bigger potential in terms of how you're going to service people, how you're going to open up this ride sharing market. And it seems very similar right now to where we are with Bitcoin and the Lightning Network, where all these innovative ways where you can implement a digitally native form of money into a product, you can completely change the game. And one of them is what you what you're talking about another one that i thought was interesting was just being able to tip online creators just having the capability to not necessarily have to go through the traditional banking system these are just new ways that these technologies can be leveraged one of the big areas that i wanted to talk about with you in this conversation is the conversation about bitcoin ordinals and i'll let you explain what bitcoin ordinals are in a second but for everyone watching in this previous bull run you saw a crazy NFT craze. You saw these tokens and these JPEGs, these forms of digital art just get ridiculous in terms of how expensive they got, the value that people were willing to pay. And you saw a lot of scams happen. And and this was really tough to see because you saw a huge amount of people get hurt and a lot of people that didn't necessarily understand what was going on, that were looking at NFTs as a way to make money getting involved in projects and getting absolutely burned. And I don't think a lot of people who are, I don't think a lot of people who are listening really understand how player versus player NFTs are. And what do I mean by player versus player? You're looking at a zero sum game. One person is making a ton of money. There's someone else that is losing a ton of money. And you seeing, you saw a lot of people hear about these projects, get in trying to hope that they would, get out soon enough with money and someone else was left holding the bag. And once again, there's no question that this hurt a lot of people individually, financially, but also the reputation of the entire industry. And I do think it it really is gross to see that type of activity happening, those types of scams happening, being lumped in with Bitcoin. I I was actually on a call earlier today. This is kind of a side note, but I was talking with a buddy and we were, I don't know how the topic came up, but it was this documentary on Netflix that came out and it was about the Pornhub documentary. And it was how Pornhub was under this big attack because these groups were lumping in the porn industry, the adult entertainment industry with human trafficking, child pornography, things like that. And Um, it ended up at the end of the day, hurting just a ton of the creators. So Pornhub, they still are making a lot of money through ads and things, but the individual creators and the, the, the 
people who weren't necessarily under attack from these organizations were the ones getting hurt the most. And in a weird way, uh, I guess I just unintentionally compared Bitcoin to, to the porn industry. But what I'm yes. saying is, Makes is sense. That, yeah, at the end of the day, these are separate things, right? Right. Like th these are completely separate things. And, and Bitcoin was hurt in a big way from everything that happened with these scams, with Sam Bankman-Fried, with these things that have nothing to do really with Bitcoin. So my question to you, first off, is can you lay out what Bitcoin ordinals are? Because many people are calling them or comparing them to NFTs within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And then I want to start diving into a little bit of this debate of some people saying that they're good for Bitcoin, some people saying that they're bad for Bitcoin, and then get your thoughts on that. So maybe we're actually talking just a second about <clears throat> NFTs. And this is some uh, topic that I did all have been finding very interesting and i uh dabbled with uh, nfts just because i'm really curious about this, this idea of digital assets and then i actually ended up working in a um uh before working after working for the big banks in, in london i ended up working for a crypto uh ethereum company so full disclosure there uh within the realm of of, of nfts um Still a Bitcoiner, always been a Bitcoiner, but I thought to myself, let's let's learn. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something I can learn from here. And uh, some some uh, the conclusion was, you know, I think the Ethereum system is a lot worse than I thought. Um, that's that was the main conclusion. But also, you know, it was an interesting experience from a startup building perspective, right? But so basically, it, NFTs have been around for a long time, and they were actually around before Ethereum in the first place, we still associate them to very negative things, but NFTs were on Bitcoin and uh, uh, some of them were inscribed as a, if you think you can even go back to, um, you can go back as far back to, to Satoshi, like Satoshi inscribed a message on the blockchain, right? And, uh, you know, this the, the chancellor on the second bailout for the banks, that was a type of inscription that used opt return and uh, increased the, the fees on chain to, to make inscribe that message. So that's one thing. But you can even go back as far back as, as Hal Finney, who in the, I forget in one news, in, in, in the Cypherpunk newsletter, actually proposed uh, some type of cryptographic trading cards that you could buy um, and sell in exchange. So what we're talking about here is it's very simple, is this concept of digitally native assets. Like we have trading cards, like we have, um, posters, uh, shit like that in the meat space, it, it makes so much sense to have something equivalent to that in the digital realm. Now we're not talking about money, right? So if you think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin responds to an insane problem, like existential problem to our civilization, I think. So in the, in the scale of importance, Bitcoin is fucking important, right? In the scale of, of the importance of NFTs and digital assets, we're talking a lot less important, like a lot less. They're still interesting and they still are fun in some ways and they're still responding to the problem of monetization, especially for the creatives and the artists, but we're not talking about the base layer of civilization, okay? So it's a different thing. And I agree with you that conflating Bitcoin and, and NFTs is, is, is just complete nonsense. It's like, but, NFTs, I think, are the reason why they were so hyped up is because 
Well, first of all, because of the marketing that the Ethereum, uh, Ethereum Foundation, uh, all these Ethereum companies just pumped so much marketing to this, like billions of dollars, right? And so created insanity. That's the first reason that it was so crazy. The second reason is it's actually because NFTs in some way, even though NFTs are a shit concept, and they are, um, they make, they're easy to understand. Oh, okay. So it's like a trading card or it's like a, but it's online. It still doesn't make so much sense because it's not cryptographic. Like it's right in the sense like, it's a right click, save it, right? You can still do that. Um, but, uh, but many people see, understood the fact that, oh, it's just, I don't have to understand the history of money. I don't have to understand Austrian economics or have any political opinions whatsoever. It's just a, it's just a monkey picture that is digital, digitally signed. Right? That's that's all what people think about. And so from my perspective, that's why I think it's got so much hype as well because it made it it's so, so much so much more relatable. There's so the cost, the, the efforts to understanding it is a lot lower than understanding Bitcoin, which takes hours and hours and hours of work. So now we get to Ethereum NFTs. Ethereum NFTs are particularly susceptible to speculation for several reasons. The first one is that you can create a single contract and create 10,000 millions bullshit NFTs. So for a very, very small cost, you can create insane amount of, of speculation, right? Then you have these like smart contracts that like, um, make it so much easier just to, to create them, to create this sort of 10,000 picks of, of things. You also have this asset of Ethereum that is a shitcoin. It's, 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 it doesn't, there's no value. There's no inherent value in it whatsoever. Um, there's also a lot of pumping that happens from these big players that want to pump their own NFTs or cryptos um, because Ethereum itself doesn't have value. And this is why Bitcoin is so much more interesting because as, have, as something that actually has value, you don't want to let go of it easily. And so you don't speculate with it as much, right? And then you have Ethereum it being actually broken. So Ethereum doesn't have a proper layer two system. All their layer two software, um, and this completely blew my mind when I was working for the for this for this Ethereum company, to understand that you still were paying $5 fees on a layer two for making a transaction. Like that's that's absolutely normal. Like that's normal, $5 transaction. Like that's, and then on top of that, the layer twos don't speak to each other. So you have Polygon, which is a layer two, and then you have, I forget which, which are the others, and they're, they're not interoperable with each other. And hear this, the layer twos have their own tokens and they have their own blockchain. So it's, it's complete insanity like that. I don't understand how, I mean, that's why we're seeing Ethereum plummet now, maybe, but it's a complete shit show in my opinion. Um, so that's whole thing. I think that charade is sort of dissipated massively. I think it's like this VC pump that's dumped, and I don't know if it will ever ever rise back up. Honestly, uh, the amount of just a lot of it was just marketing, uh, and so little of it was actually delivered. That just hasn't delivered. Whereas Bitcoin, thinking long term, it took four years while they were pumping their bags. For the last four years, Bitcoin's been quietly building a layer two that could actually transform the payment ecosystem of the world in a way that scales and works. It's incredible, right? So now we have Lightning. <clears throat> and uh, 
it works incredibly well. And now people are building these, these ordinals, these inscriptions using ordinal theory. Uh, ordinals are basically a way of ordering Satoshis, right? So going back to your question, that's a bit of a long-winded long answer, but ordinals are a way of ordering sats. And basically there are 21 million Bitcoin, that makes it around 21 quadrillion Satoshis. And each 21 quadrillion Satoshi ha has a place in this ordinal graph, um, whereby each single Satoshi can be inscribed with a photo, with, a, with, a, with an image that is inscribed on chain directly. <clears throat> and that's actually another problem that I mentioned about Ethereum is that Ethereum has a problem of, of how assets are stored, right? So they're not actually engraved. Most Ethereum NFTs are not engraved on the blockchain. They're sort of, um, they're just links, right? So you have a link to an NFT somewhere else that someone else is storing in their database in somebody else's database on IPFS. Anyway, somewhere that's actually highly unreliable. So it's unlikely to, to, to last the test of time. Inscriptions are inscribed on the Bitcoin blockchain and therefore are going to be there as long as Bitcoin will be there. So we're talking about something that will last. And the ordinal stuff is basically a way of reading the data and subscribing it to someone. So if you have that Satoshi, if you own that Satoshi, that single Satoshi, and that Satoshi is sort of connected to that inscription, well, you own that inscription. So there's some mental like hallucination, like some mental um, gymnastics involved. Um, but that's sort of how how inscriptions and ordinals sort of creates these NFTs, these digital assets on on Bitcoin. I I, I listened to what um, the creator of inscriptions, uh, Casey's, uh, says. You know, super smart guy. Like, you know, um, um, and I, I mostly agree with him. Like, from, from a nuanced perspective, we're talking about assets on Bitcoin. We're talking about um, NFTs done well on Bitcoin. Um, also, they're less susceptible to, to speculation because A, people are holding Bitcoin holders are not going to be like, oh yeah, monkey picks. No, Bitcoin is, va is a valuable asset. You don't want to be just giving it away like that. So I think the ethos of Bitcoin will make NFTs less of a charade as it was in Ethereum. But also because you engrave each single asset on the, on the blockchain, it makes it a lot less speculative because, as I said before, you can't create 10,000 in a single contract. You have to inscribe 10,000 monkey picks, which you only really will do if you think that will that will actually be worthwhile because it's pretty costly to do so, right? Yeah, so there's several reasons why I think inscriptions on Bitcoin uh, are, are less harmful than Ethereum. Um, and, and also there is the... The, the positive of the whole Ethereum ecosystem is kind of gambler degen types are coming into Bitcoin. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good thing that we expand. Like Bitcoin is for everyone. Um, it's for <laughs> it's for degens as well, I guess, in this sense. And yeah, this will rise the, the fees of Bitcoin on chain. Thanks to Lightning, this isn't a problem for most people, first of all. And uh, this will actually help secure the network. Uh, because it will lead to more higher hash rate. Uh, um, it will create more transactions, more activity. It will lead to more miners. It, it will just, it just makes 
increases the revenue for miners, more hashing. So in my opinion, uh, like I'm okay with that. I'm okay with paying a little bit more these days. You know, the, the days of one sat per V byte are over. Um, but but also I think even now it's it's there's been a lot of hype because of that. But let's see. I, I don't think I, I don't think it will be the same craziness that you had in Ethereum. Um, I think a lot of these people doing it now are doing it for fun, and I think a lot of people will realize that well, I should learn what Bitcoin is, how Lightning works. Um, I think a lot of the bullshit project will sort of die out. And so only things that will that are provide value will remain. So yeah, I have a bit of a more of a nuanced perspective, I think. Uh, but I'm, I'm mostly bullish and I hope that you know we take the good things of Ethereum and we bring them over to Bitcoin so that we can also let Ethereum sink. And uh, I think the nuance is very important. And the way that you described it, if I'm saying this back accurately, it's like all these other cryptos outside of Bitcoin are like the experiments. They're going, they're testing things, they're moving fast, <laughs> breaking them. And then as Bitcoin continues to go TikTok next block and continues to be reliable, we can see everything that's being done. And then from there, implement the ones that work the best, implement it slowly. And, and implement I mean, it better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's correct. Like, yeah, yeah I think you're right. And with Ethereum and a lot of these other cryptos, going back to the NFT portion, it, it was interesting because I didn't realize the mechanics of how an NFT, for example, on Ethereum worked versus how ordinals and inscriptions on Bitcoin are working. It's interesting to see that inherently in that type of regard, it's not like you and I can go on Ethereum, like on Ethereum, you and I could go and say, hey, let's start puppy coin 3000 and let's pump this thing and let's have a liquidity pool and set a fake market price and then dump it once we have yeah. enough liquidity providers. That was a big scam that you saw happening in the Ethereum universe with all these NFTs versus in Bitcoin. This is not something that you can necessarily do the same way. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. So my next question here would be in terms of the early applications of Bitcoin ordinals, not to beat the topic into the ground, but I'm just out of curiosity, I'm wondering, have you heard of any stories or any applications or are there any key takeaways that anyone who's listening can walk away with from your experience learning about or researching ordinals? There's very little right there. I mean, to, I was I was stunned to see that ordinals just appeared out of nowhere and I wasn't even, yeah, I was, I, I was taken aback. I, I was really not aware. It's really a one or two man project, right? Um, um, and I, I think if you want to learn more, just follow and read up on what, I forget his first name, but his last name is Casey. Uh, do, you, do you remember his full name, William? I do uh, not know. Is it Jason Casey or something? I can't remember exactly, but yeah, I mean, look up what he's up to, like read his pod, listen to his podcast, uh, you know, super a smart guy, like, you know, technical and not like, so he'll provide a more, you know, more, more insight into that. Um, yeah, and read, read, read up on what, what he's up to. Um, and yeah, dabble with it, play with it. I, I'm, I'm like that, I'm like, I'm a tinker, you know, I, 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 I learn by trying shit and getting burnt. And, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the ordinals, I, I like to play, play around with it and see how it works. And uh, it's, it's interesting how it connects and how it can connect with Noster as well, connect with Noster profile. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Just to, I think it's interesting innovation and 
I'm not particularly uh, uh, worried about it. It's funny hearing you say play things with tinker, play play around with things, and then let them break. I had an interview with Brad Mills the other day, and it was oh, nice. so eye-opening to see how many scams that he fell for in learning all wow. the lessons that he has. Because one of the questions I asked him, I said, how did you know that these crypto behemoths like BlockFi, Celsius were going to go under? Because he was calling it out way beforehand. And he Same. said, look, I've been scammed so many times. He, he knows what to look for. So it was interesting. Uh, definitely recommend that people who are listening to this go check out that episode. Uh, it's the it, it was one that I just I learned a lot during that conversation, just like I'm, I'm learning a lot here. And um, definitely awesome. recommend checking that. Yeah, out. I, lo I love I love Brad. He's an incredible person and uh, yeah, has always a lot of stories and interesting things to say. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And you mentioned one piece. I'm glad that you brought it up so I don't forget. I want to talk with you about Noster. So mm -hmm. for everyone listening, uh, do you think that you could outline as if you're talking to a five-year-old how, like what Noster is, and then we can start diving into uh, some of the the meaty details of it? Yeah, I think Noster is really, really exciting. And people have put in many different ways. One useful way that I've seen it is basically it's a, it's a new way of broadcasting information it's a new way of publishing content and um it, it does so by by deconstructing the way that, that the system basically online platforms work today which is using the, the server client model uh in a centralized way so in every social media platform you have a server that stores the data and then you have the clients that, 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 that receives the data and it's easy at the back end and the front end. Noster basically deconstructs them um, in a way that you have many, many possible servers and many possible clients. And actually, just to, it's probably also really important to mention that the reason why Noster was created in the first place, it was created by Fiat Jaff in an attempt to basically um, uh, solve the problem of censorship online, by seeing what's going on with Twitter seeing what's going on with Facebook and LinkedIn and et cetera, just all these social media platforms that are in control of the servers and the information and the data um, of the users. Users have are user, users on every platform are, are servants. They, they don't own their data. Um, they don't control what gets said, uh, what, what they say, they, they don't own it. Um, and so Fiat Jeff created a system that allows a user to really own that content uh, by owning basically the same concept of owning as Bitcoin, basically being able to sign uh, a cryptographically secured message using public-private key encryption. So you have a public key that everyone sees and sends messages to, and you have a private key that allows you to send messages and broadcast messages, right? And when you broadcast messages, those messages can go not just to one server, say Twitter, but it's a, it's a bit like sending a message several different servers called relays, uh, like imagine sending it to Twitter, but maybe you could even be running your own server, so your own relay. So you could be uh, storing your own relay. Um, um, but the fact that there are so many relays makes it particularly difficult to attack because you could be signing messages to all these different databases. And so you're spreading the message around. And by doing so, you are, you're making your, you know, any attempt at censorship is going to be like playing guacamole, guacamole, right? So, 
So there are many servers, there are many clients, sorry, there are many uh, relays, and there are many clients. So any client is, is basically a platform that can connect to these different relays uh, and uh, showcase the, the interface of the data. So you have now, I don't even know how many, probably in the 20s, different clients that read data coming in from these different relays uh, servers. And so what you end up with is this new ecosystem, this new way of interfacing with data online uh, that is a lot more censorship resistant, that allows you to own your data because you the data is connected to your public and private key and only the owner of the private key can sign messages um, and makes interoperability possible. So if you are a creator and you, you can sign in in one client, uh, or just another simple example, imagine being able to log into Twitter, send a message and reading it on Facebook, right? That's pretty, pretty mind boggling. You might think, oh, but why would I do that? Well, because you can then say, see that same account from Twitter important into Facebook, right? So you see that same message on Facebook um, or on LinkedIn, right? So these are just, now they're just become interfaces and you can bring data along with you. So incredibly powerful, it's incredibly interesting and kind of connecting back to the Nord or to the ordinals idea, excuse me, you can have digital assets on Noster. So uh, I know people are exploring with the idea of, of Noster badges. Badges are like digital assets that are issued by particular public keys, uh, accounts, profiles, right? And you can receive and provide and give digital badges. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at some point people will create other types of digitally native assets. Um, now, with Noster, it's still unreliable in the sense that uh, because you have all these different relays, you have different sources of truth. And so sometimes you end up having different different ones. So there's still some, uh, it's not perfect for reliability in terms of like uh, accurate data. I shouldn't say accurate data, it's a better term for it, but it's not perfect when it comes to uh, um, uh, this type of, um, if, you, if, you, if you need a, perfectly, uh, a perfect answer right away, basically. Uh, but it's incredible when it comes to just messaging, social media, and I think we'll start seeing more platforms on top of Noster. And Geyser is probably going to be one of these platforms that are built on Noster as well, so that users can create content on Geyser and be able to interoperate that. People will be able to create content on Geyser and see it on other platforms. Uh, so yeah, we're particularly excited about uh, Noster and, and see how people can basically uh, uh, use it in a more, uh, use crowdfunding using a uh, more censorship resistant protocol. Very interesting. So I actually want you to unpack that piece on how, when you mean Geyser can be built on top of Noster. Uh, but before even diving into that, my quick thoughts on this, because I'm still learning a lot about it, but I think it's, there are a couple of things that stand out about Noster to me, at least. Mm -hmm. One is, in today's climate, how important a tool like this becomes, just being able to have censorship-free social media, to say it super, super simply, uh, where you know you can post on one, you, you can post in one place and then have it being posted to all these different platforms. That's just such a foreign idea to me, 
where you post something to Facebook and it's showing up on Twitter, it's showing up on Instagram, it's showing up on all these other platforms. The other thing that stands out to me about Noster is that it's growing so quickly and it's still mm-hmm. in a stage where it's very, very early. And I think that's the power of open source technology. When you have an open source technology, the rate of innovation is so fast. If you want to innovate on one of these existing platforms, the number of people that can actually be part of that innovation process are so small. And there are all these roadblocks that they have to go to versus an open protocol like Noster, all of a sudden, anyone in the entire world, if they've got a great idea, a great feature, a great application, they can go and they can just build it. They don't need to go and ask for permission to publish it to the world. And I just think that that concept across history wins. Open source technology beats non-open source technology. And I think that you're seeing that happen in real time in the very, very early stages with Noster. And I'm very, very happy that I get to speak with you about this because I'm trying to unpack how this really plays out. Like what are those second order, third order effects? And going back to the initial question I was asking you, when you're talking about building on Noster with Geyser, what do you mean in particular? Could you give an example of, for example, how someone would interact with Noster and Geyser and and just lay out lay out that whole, I guess, transaction or relationship for me? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's particularly complex because we we are a platform in the in the old in the old uh, way of thinking about it right so we are still a centralized platform that stores data right and offers the interface and uh and it's not going to be entirely easy to extricate ourselves away from that um but what we think the the pain, the main problem we want to solve by integrating with Nostr is the fact that we want to give users the option to own the data that they're creating on Geyser that's one. The second one is leverage the power of interoperability that Noster enables. So again, going back to the idea that if you're creating content on Geyser, why not be able to see this content on other Noster platforms, right? So why not be able to, because that way we don't, because it to us, it doesn't matter if people are funding from, from Geyser or funding from any other Noster clients. People are still, the funding is still in the end going to the user passing through Geyser. Um, so what matters to us is more, how do we increase the amount of funding happening? Um, and so by broadcasting the content out, we naturally uh, uh, reap the benefits of the data of content uh, being more visible, more available without people having to come to our platform. So that's sort of the main idea. And, uh, and then obviously, as I said, ownership of the data is also really, really important. So in the nitty gritties, um, how we plan to roll it out is basically by rendering geyser projects, which are a geyser project is could be, you know, I am a street artist making street art in Barcelona, right? Help me make more street art. You know, I'll give you these perks if you fund me, right? That's a project. Now it's a project that sits in our database, but we can nostrify it by making that making that project into a Noster profile, which is with its own public-private key, so that you would see it on a client. Right now, you probably just see it as a as a user, but it's actually a Geyser project. But down the road, we can do some protocol updates so that we show that a, not just as a profile, but as a as an actual project. That's how we can make 
a project Nostra native and then on Geyser, if you're the project owner, you you have the keys perhaps for that project. Uh, and perhaps you, you know, you create a, a, a note, a tweet on, on Geyser, notes, uh, or you write an article or uh, add a, a, a shop item that you're selling. Well, all these things could sit on Noster in some way or another, right? And so what that means is that you can then take the data and um, take it around to other clients if you want to, uh, or uh, uh, go from other clients over to, to Geyser and run your campaign. Uh, and um, more importantly, just see this data across platforms so that we're all speaking the same language and we're not siloed anymore. Uh, I think this is particularly exciting just for freeing the creators from, from, from boundaries, right? And we talked a bit about borderlessness a bit before, but borderlessness is not just a border, it's not just nation state borderlessness, borderlessness, but also platform borderlessness, right? So being freed from, yeah, like national, but also um, platform constraints. Because platforms at the end of the day are, are like nation states. Uh, it's just that the owners of the platforms are like dictators, like they're, they're rulers, like they're, they're the god kings of these, na of these nations. But with protocols, it's interesting because there is no ruler. So it's really a type of democracy, a type of open system. You could even say an anarchy um, that works <laughs> um, within cyberspace. So I don't know, an interesting idea I had was the idea that if you think about the span of human, the last two or 3,000 years of human history, it's been this increasing struggle that goes from like, basically from like, God kings, you know, pharaohs, uh, emperors, to like, you know, less powerful kings, to like human, uh, you know, uh, the American Revolution, civil war, the European like uh, you know, countries um, letting go of their of their uh, of their of their dictator of their kings and becoming democracies. It's sort of, sort of this increasing tendency towards decentralizations. And uh, I mean, not to not to like tout democracy too much, but it still is a pretty good attempt at decentralizing power somewhat, if it works. Um, and I think we're starting to see that in cyberspace now, but not in the span of two, three thousand years, in the span of like fifty years, right? So you had Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Elon Musk, uh, uh, and all these god kings of these platforms, right? Slowly their power being eroded away by these platforms that provide a more democratic, uh, a more anarchic, a more fair and, 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 and democratic system in cyberspace. And so we're seeing the same trends, uh, history rhymes, except it's not, it's in meat space now, it's in cyberspace. You got my mind turning right now, just trying to think through all this, because I've been getting that same type of feeling where you've had this type of evolution and right now with these more powerful technologies, it spawns different governance structures. So for example, a leader today has the capability to do so much more in terms of good and bad because they yeah. have these stronger technologies. And I feel like a lot of people don't really realize how powerful some of these tech platforms are. These are non-elected ruling bodies that govern the digital world. So if you're a user of Twitter, if you're a user of any of these platforms, you can be deplatformed. And we've seen this a lot. We've seen very, very powerful. We've seen a sitting president get deplatformed. 
And whether you like someone or not, I think that that is just a very, mm-hmm. that's a very powerful tool that it can be good in the right hands. It could be bad in the wrong hands. Noster is one of these platform protocols, not even platforms. Noster is one of these protocols that allows people to opt out of that type of a system. And it's yeah. really interesting, at least for me personally, because I, I wasn't in Bitcoin super, super early and I didn't know exactly I, I hear the stories, but it's different if you hear the stories of someone who was in in the very early days versus someone who, who if you're in in there during the early days versus just hearing a story, it's I feel like it's a very different thing. And right now, it just feels like the very, very early days of the Noster protocol. And it's going to be really interesting to see how, how it picks up, really. Yeah, absolutely. And... I- as they say, you have Bitcoin, right? You have Lightning or protocols, and now you have Noster. And if you think about the network effects of these systems and compounded with each other's um, network effects, you have this sort of super supra network effect that really could take over. Like you could have Noster being the key orange pilling tools for, for, for the world. Like you really could have it, like you could see Oh yeah, it's just another social media app where you can compete in Bitcoin. And holy fuck, Bitcoin works really well. <laughs> what is Bitcoin, right? And it just—it's insane to think about how these network effects are working and compounding with each other. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful sight to behold, honestly. And yeah, uh, Nostra, I think is really exciting. And uh, yeah, can't wait to discover more and how yeah how how we can grow. I think last time I checked, we were at eight hundred thousand users wonder if we're going to break 1 million you read my mind there i was going to ask how many users were on there because it only came out how many months ago it's a very new no it's been two years it's been two years oh really um yeah yeah it's been two years i think i discovered it like a year and a half ago or something um and actually we even spoke with fiat jaff the creator of nostr like eight eight months ago and we're like, yeah, we want to integrate with Noster. Guys are integrated with Noster. Um, but because we we're so pressured and nobody really knew Noster, we were like, okay, let's wait and see because you never know, right? Like maybe it's got some flaw that we hadn't thought about. Or so, um, but you know, there were some people who are more courageous and uh, than us that decided to take the leap, like uh, Damus, like William Casterin, Bill Damus, insane guy, insane platform, love lo- what he's doing. Um, and obviously then Jack Dorsey came along, you know, yeah, this, this changes things. This, this, this increases the chances of success of a protocol massively. And, um, it seems like, you know, it's one of those things where the more people, the more people, right. And yeah, so it makes sense for us to, 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 to integrate it. But yeah, it's, I think last time I checked, it was 700,000 followers. Um, and I, I, the massive number of growth I think is in China, right. Because of how much censorship they have over there. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of catalytic <laughs> events happening in the world that right. would make you think that this should be more popular. And it seems like it's really helping spawn right. more attention, more growth. Do you have any predictions for where this is going in the next couple of years? You, you mentioned network effects, and I'm curious as to. I'm curious as someone who's been aware of it since the beginning and then seeing what's been happening with adoption and seeing those network effects 
in terms of increased adoption, where do you think this platform's going or this protocol is going? I got to stop saying platform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely not a platform, but uh, yeah. So yeah, that's a good question. Man. I, I, so <clears throat> first thing definitely worth mentioning is Nostra is not the other, the only protocol in town. And there are other interesting things being built like the synonym that takes a very a different approach. <clears throat> Excuse me, you know, John Carvalho, smart guy, with a lot of smart people building this stack using this different software. And it's rather than the technology being super different, it's more the approach to building. So Nostr, the beauty of Nostr is like all open source thrown there. And uh, let's just start building from, from something. So they, they literally put something out from the very, very get-go, a bit like Bitcoin, right? Just fucking put it out there. And then I think when they first released Bit, uh, Bitcoin, it didn't even have, God, it didn't have its key thing, right? Which was the, um, was it the inflation schedule or it didn't, no, it didn't have the- um, <clears throat> Bitcoin with, with SegWit? No, I'm thinking 2010, man. I'm thinking, I think it, Bitcoin, when it launched, it didn't have the, uh, what's it called when you have the increasing the amount of uh, the two week the difficulty adjustment uh, the difficulty adjustment yeah if I remember correctly the difficulty adjustment wasn't there for the entire first year right but they just put it out there and then they improved it as they went so Nostra is similar like just fucking build it out there put it out there and people care we can develop the network right whereas the other attempts are more like like you have synonym that is a little a lot more research and they're still like building out and they're still kind of designing it and um and that's a little bit more like relying on a few number of people figuring it out while instead of nostrils like let's let everyone who cares figure it out and build it right and then you have other attempts like uh uh like uh, blue sky by, by tw twitter um funded by jack dorsey that uses some similar stack but also very like central control you don't have access to it like no one can see the code. It's kind of a little bit more like academic-y. Uh, also super smart people working on it. Well, so you have what, what I'd call like protocol wars going on, right? And maybe some protocols will like merge and maybe some collaborations. Um, but mostly I would characterize them as protocol. If you talk, if you see what these bad people are, <clears throat> some of the protocol developers from these different protocols are saying, they're like literally talking shit to each other. They're like, <laughs> it's like a warfare going on, right? It's really fascinating. Um, and uh, and so let's see, like, let's see, maybe, you know, Synonym, I think that's got some interesting stack there. Uh, let's see how Nostr behaves, right? Let's see when, they, you know, it reaches 10 million users. If, let's see if it really can scale with this model of relays. Let's see how many relays are going to want to remain free. Let's see how many relays are going to want to get paid because people are going to start adding more content. Let's see when we get video, like we still don't have the ability to link videos on, um, on Nostr. Like, can you recreate a TikTok on Nostr that actually works for free? Like, let's see. Like, it's it's an entirely new model, um, tech stack, business model. It's a new paradigm. And so there's going to be challenges, uh, scaling challenges, payment challenges, UX challenges. But people are excited about it. And so I think this is where the excitement uh, um, <clears throat> Is, is important as it infects you, makes you want to be part of building it. Um, but also we need platforms, like we need people that are 
building things, uh, and I keep building things because I'm getting out this excitement. I think it's actually it's a bit of a slowdown maybe now. Um, uh, and let's see, people want to keep building, right? If they're able to, to to raise money, convince investors that this is important, and um, because you know at the end of the day, like I think William Castro even said that recently, he's like. At this point, he hasn't raised any money for for Damus, um, and he's like, you know, starting to eat through his savings to keep they to keep building Damus. And people have all these expectations on him. It's like, oh, why don't you build this feature and that feature and that feature? And um, yeah, it's it's it, 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 open source development has a limitation in how much you can actually, uh, you know, keep keep going because at some point you you have to put food in your plate. And so, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, and I think, I, I think it, it, it has it has a future. Amazing. Inflation is transitory.